All right. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us for Compass Point, the podcast from the VCU Wilder School's Office of Research and Outreach. Here, we discuss current policy and governmental issues, share promising practices for conducting research, explore research conducted by the faculty members within the Wilder School and beyond, and provide tips for students and others interested in pursuing their own research. My name is Brittany Keegan, and I'm the Director of Research Promotion and Engagement here at the Wilder School. And today I'm joined by Dr. Haley Cleary, an associate professor in our criminal justice and public policy department. So Dr. Cleary, thank you so much for being here. We're excited to have you join us. Um, To start, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your research interests? Sure, so thank you for inviting me. Um, I am, as you mentioned, an associate professor of criminal justice and public policy here in the Wilder School. Um, My training is actually in public policy and developmental psychology. Um, So I pursued a dual degree um, at Georgetown University, a master's degree in public policy and a PhD in developmental psychology. So my research interests are on um, how adolescents and their families navigate the legal system, how they make important legal decisions, and how they interact with different components of the legal system, whether that's law enforcement, officers, or courts, or even youth corrections. Oh, that's really interesting. So what made you want to pursue that topic? When I was an undergraduate uh, studying psychology at the University of Virginia, I was really interested in youth and families from a developmental perspective. So how um, kids, humans, change and grow uh, throughout the lifespan just from a... um, even a biological and a social perspective. Mm-hmm. And so I, I always found the developmental courses very interesting in psychology. At the same time, I had a real interest in the legal system, how it works, how it could be made better, mm-hmm. um, understanding the, the problems and challenges that we have in the American justice or legal system and um, what we can do about it. So I had this sort of kind of um, dual interests, and I was trying to figure out how to combine them. And um, I had the pleasure and good fortune of taking a course with um, a very famous professor at UVA. His name is Dick Rapucci. Um, he's one of the, I guess, founding fathers of community psychology, which mm-hmm. is sort of how psycholo- psychology and psychological principles operate in, um, in community settings. And he taught a course called Children, Families, and the Law, and it absolutely captivated me. Um, It showed me how all of my interests that seemed so different to me really intersected um, and introduced me first to some of these issues that that I still study today, like police interrogation. So it started as an undergraduate and and grew from there. That's great. You know, it's so wonderful when we're able to really take those different interests that we have and combine them, and especially when you have a mentor, as you mentioned. I also liked what you said about, you know, how can we make this better? I think that's really why we all do the research that we do, just how can we make our part of the world a little bit better through our work? Um, You know, when we're conducting research, I know sometimes the methodology we use can be different when you're working with, you know, children versus adults or families. Can you talk a little bit more about your methodology and your process for that research? Sure. So as a psychologist, uh, I almost exclusively conduct primary data collection um, and that's because the, the topics that I'm interested in studying, you know, how police uh, in, custodially interrogate young suspects, is not, it's a, a very sort of uh, niche and sometimes misunderstood topic for which um, data don't exist. Right. And so, um, 
So researchers in my area of interest have to be creative in how we learn more about this topic. And it's, it's such an understudied topic that, um, that we're, there's a lot of firsts in the interrogation mm-hmm. research. So for example, my dissertation um, project involved examining and analyzing video recorded juvenile interrogation. So I partnered with um, some folks at the FBI National Academy in Quantico to collect video recorded electronic or electronically recorded interrogations from police departments all over the U.S. And that's something that um, prior to my study had only been done once before with adolescent suspects because it's really hard to access those videos. But if you want to know how police question youth, then describing what actually happens when police question youth is the first step. So um, that observational approach is one example of an approach that I have used in the past, but it's all really driven by what your research question is, right? And this is what I teach um, the doctoral students when they come to my course in in the public policy doctoral program here, which is um, the design and the research questions come first and the, the method of data collection comes next Um, when you think about how best to answer that research question scientifically. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the goals of this podcast is to provide information to students like the ones that you have and to um, other faculty members who are trying to maybe start their own research. Would you be able to talk a little bit about how you, um, you know, got access to those recordings that can sometimes be hard to find or what steps someone might take if they want some data but it's kind of tricky to get to? Sure, that's a great question. So I'm a very firm believer that researchers who are interested in policy-relevant work and interested in interacting with systems, whether it's the legal system or um, pol- you know police departments, um, should work with our community partners. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, that meant spending years, quite frankly, developing a relationship um, with research partners that I had met through professional um, avenues at the FBI. Because um, you, know, you can't just walk into the FBI and say, help me you know, pull thousands of police departments across the country you know, using the name of the FBI to get them to send you videotapes. Mm-hmm. And I, I apply those same principles, whether it's the FBI or whether it's you know, the Richmond City Jail or the, the, the local police department. Um, researchers and justice system professionals have a lot to learn from one another. And I think we need to approach one another as collaborators, not as um, competitors or um, with any degree of mistrust because um, we we each have something to contribute to the conversation, right? I'm trained as a, a skilled researcher, so I know how to use the scientific method to answer research questions that are important to improving justice system processes. At the same time, I've never been a sworn law enforcement officer. I've never conducted an interrogation. I have a tremendous respect for the people who do that work. um, And they can, they have expertise and experience that can help me form better research questions and we can work together to make the process better. Absolutely. And, you know, going back to what you said before about we just, how can we make things better and how can we do it together? I think we really do need each other and people from all parts of the community to bring about that positive change. Um, so let's talk about some of the work products from this research. What are some things that you're really proud of, whether it's like an academic article or a white paper or some policy changes, anything? Oh, that, excellent. That's a great question. So um, 
certainly the work products, you know, the, the first work product to come out of any, any work, whether it's, you know, videotaped interrogations or whether it's conducting a survey um, with persons who are incarcerated in jail, um, you know, a high quality scholarly, scholarly article is um, kind of the first important work product because that is how you demonstrate what you learned um, and make, make a contribution to the, the scientific community. Um, and so from there, though, you know, I think it's really important to translate those work products to the people who can actually implement them or use them. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, you know, the other scholars in my field n- need to know what I'm working on. I need to know what they're working on. And we can have that, that scientific conversation. But I try to um, develop you know, whether it's a one-page brief or um, a policy memo that I can hand to legislators or law enforcement officers to say, here's what we've learned in plain language, and here's how I think it might apply to you. Um, In particular, I've been very proud of working um, on a couple of different pieces of legislation with the Virginia General Assembly based on what we've learned about um, good and bad interrogation practices. So in 2020, Um, Senator Jennifer McClellan and also Senator Stanley and Delegate Adams all sponsored bills that would require police departments in the state of Virginia to um, electronically record interrogations because prior to that it hadn't been a mandate in Virginia, though it it was in about 27 or 28 other states at the time. And I'm, you know, I'm very happy to, to say that I contributed some in some small way in help getting that legislation passed, um, providing information about fiscal impacts and about um, the, the challenges that electronically recording interrogations can illuminate for fact finders like judges and juries. And so, you know, um, Virginia became... The, I think the 30th state at the time to record um, electronic interrogations in 2020, and that was really exciting. That's great. I mean, it's really, you know, great example of showing how your work not only impacts academia, but also, you know, policy and our whole community in general. I think sometimes one of the criticisms of academia is that we're just in our ivory tower, not really going out in the community. So it's really great how you've been able to sort of translate that. Um, and, you know, people are still impacted by that policy today and in a good way. In a good way. Um, I know you also recently received a grant in 2020 from the National Science Foundation, or NSF. Um, Would you mind sharing a little bit about that with us? Maybe what are some of the goals with the project and what inspired you to conduct that research? Sure. So um, this project came about from a different uh, research program that I've been engaged with around adolescent sexual offending. So it's still under the same umbrella of um, how kids interact with the legal system and um, potentially face long-term serious consequences Mm -hmm. as they become entangled in the legal system. And I have a research partner and good friend uh, named Dr. Cynthia Najowski at the University of Albany. And she and I um, have been working on this idea for a long time. And we are interested in merging uh, what criminological theory has to predict about the efficacy of sex offender registration laws for juveniles and comparing that to what developmental psychological theory has to say about 
the potential deterrent effect of these mm-hmm. laws. So that it's all rooted in this policy question, right? Um, states all over the nation have some form of, most of them have some form of registration requirement that involves adolescents who are convicted of sexual crimes or certain sexual crimes. And we know from other areas of research that um, being labeled and uh, promoted as a sex offender can have a lot of harmful unintended consequences. And we know that for youth, those consequences can be particularly severe or lifelong. Mm -hmm. And so um, Cindy and I thought, well, these policies are rooted in deterrence theory, right? The idea, at least partially rooted, the idea that if... If you if you know you could be registered potentially for life as a sex offender, that will deter people from committing sexual crimes. But developmental psychology says youth are impulsive and sensation-seeking. They're more driven by present rewards than future consequences. And importantly, the parts of their brain that govern rational thinking and impulse control and self-regulation aren't fully formed yet. And so developmental psychology would predict that these laws would not exhibit any deterrent effect on um, adolescent sexual behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, But that hadn't been tested yet, uh, not in a systematic way. So we developed a two-wave longitudinal study to prospectively test whether knowledge of potential consequences, including sex offender registration, will deter um, youth from future sexual offending. That's great. And could you talk a little bit about um, how you built your research team? I know you mentioned that you had um, your colleague who was a longtime friend. What about other people on the teams? Like, What kind of things do you look at when you're trying to get a group together to go after a grant and conduct research? Sure. So this is a big project. It's a big grant, certainly the biggest one I've, I've ever received. And so, um, you know, the sta- and, and the same goes for my collaborators. So the stakes are, are high for us as relatively newer investigators. Uh, so the first thing we did was identify um, a project coordinator um, mm-hmm. here on the VCU side. And so um, this is a doctoral student who um, is funded by the grant for at a, at a part-time level to you know, manage the day-to-day operations of the grant, um, support our research endeavors, um, do all kinds of logistical planning and tracking, um, even things like data cleaning and analysis. So um, she's an important, critical part of our team. Mm-hmm. And then this coming summer, we'll be adding a project coordinator on the Albany side as well. And that will be another um, doctoral student at Albany who can help with project-related tasks at that location. And I like how you're getting students involved too, kind of you know training the next generation yes. and getting them involved in you know great NSF grant like that. Um, so what was the NSF grant application process like? I'm sure it was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot. And... Um, so uh, Sydney and I had unsuccessfully um, applied for this grant twice in the past, okay. and um, that's very normal, although still disheartening, nonetheless. <laughs> uh, but it was a really valuable learning experience. So we got feedback from NSF reviewers with both of our unsuccessful previous attempts, and we used that feedback along with feedback that we solicited from people that we trust Mm -hmm. and our own mentors and and collaborators uh, to make it better, to to improve uh, the grant, to strengthen the grant. And importantly, I think, um, you know, they say third time's a charm. (laughs) Uh, I think what contributed to the third time being a charm for us is that the third time we applied, we had pilot data. 
And those pilot data came from a VCU grant that I received in 2015, a PERC grant, the Presidential Research Quest Fund. And that um, smaller internal grant process is really, it's a seed grant program. It's meant to help researchers collect a little bit of data to develop measures and test initial hypotheses, essentially to show proof of concept, mm-hmm. so that when you go to these larger federal organizations like NSF, you can you can say, look, we've already started this, we've worked out the kinks, we have some data to show for it, can you help us level up? Right. So I really credit that PERT grant as being integral to our success the third time around. That's great, I think that's a good lesson. I mean, we all get rejected a lot in academia, yes. but we also get acceptances and just continuing to try and to push for it um, can be hard to remember sometimes, but when it pays off, it's totally worth it. Absolutely. Let's see. So the project began in 2020, and I see that it runs through 2023, so it's ongoing. So, so far, what are maybe some of the challenges and successes that you've encountered? Oh, I have learned many things (laughs) in this process already. So uh, the biggest challenge was and still is COVID. So the, the study involves collecting um, web-based survey data from nearly 1,400 teenagers, ages mm-hmm. 14 to 17. And we've partnered with a local research firm that specializes in community-based recruitment and engagement. And um, this firm, they're called Research Unlimited. They're terrific. They're wonderful to work with. And they leverage their um, relationships with community organizations like churches and nonprofits and community centers, uh, where people, where places, excuse me, where people gather, young people gather to help us collect these data. And, you know, the pandemic hit and gatherings in these places weren't allowed anymore. Mm-hmm. And so data collection has been slower than we anticipated in our timeline, um, in large part because of that. Right. And, you know, with the understanding that data collection has been um, I guess more slow than you'd expected, are there any initial findings that you're able to share with us or anything that maybe you found particularly interesting or as exciting as you've collected any data? So we don't have enough data to look at in a systematic way from this study, but in the pilot phases, what we saw was confirmation of what we did learn with that um, PERC study where we... Um, we collected data from 150 youth in that study. And what we found is about half of adolescents in that age group, 14 to 17 years old, have no idea that youth can be registered as sex offenders in the state of wow. Virginia. Okay. They, they aren't even aware that the policy exists. Right. And so if you think about that in the context of deterrence theory, right? Deterrence theory pr- presumes that you will be deterred if a policy is... Um, you know, serious enough, but that presumes that you know and understand that the policy exists. If you're not even aware of those potential sanctions, then how can you be deterred by them? So what we found is that sort of first hurdle, if you will, of deterrence theory, awareness of the policy is missing in a large portion of adolescents. Absolutely. I mean, that's already a really important finding that has, you know, important policy implications. So I'm excited to see what else comes out of the research. Um, you know, Noah talked a little bit about, you know, just kind of continuing on and trying again. Do you have any other advice for researchers who might be interested in conducting um, similar research to what you do or who might be interested in pursuing a big grant like an NSF grant? Persistence is key. I mean, I think 
I am recalling the timeline when Cindy and I first started this project because she and I have children around the same age. And I remember meeting up with her at our annual conference of psychology and law to talk about this idea and brainstorm. And we were both very excited about it. Um, and I was, um, I think I had, my oldest son was six months old at the time, and wow. he's now eight and a half. <laughs> so, you know, we, we started working on this idea a long time, you know, got rejected, made changes, got rejected again. But we thought that it was a study worth doing, worth investing in, and we just had to get the particulars right. right. Um, and one thing that I've really learned about grants in particular, and I learned it the hard way, is you, you really learn by failure. You, right. you, you get better by failure and you learn by other people's successes and failures. So I would reach out to um, colleagues of mine at other universities across the U.S. and ask them for examples of their successful grants mm -hmm. and their unsuccessful grants. And some of them would share the feedback that they received. Um, I also took every opportunity that I was offered to serve as a grant reviewer. And that okay. is extremely helpful. And That's so a great I've done, idea. It, it, you really learn how the deliberation process right. works and what kinds of um, strengths the reviewers are looking for and how to, especially how to align your proposal with the grant stated goals. Mm -hmm. It sounds simple to do, um, but in practice, I, I could see as I reviewed dozens of high quality proposals the ones that did it better than others and how. So that was an incredibly um, helpful experience. I've, I've reviewed very small internal grants and I've reviewed grants for, you know, the, the entire Canadian government has a grant program. Um, so, and lots of things in between. And that is just absolutely without substitute when it comes to learning how to, how to achieve these grant goals. I mean, seeing it from all those different sides would be so valuable. So that's great advice for, for others looking to do that. Um, I guess this, my last question, kind of ending it on a fun note, what is your favorite thing about conducting research and doing this work? Oh, my favorite thing is, is being able to satisfy my intellectual curiosity. Mm -hmm. It's being able to ask questions and design studies that answer them and to, to do work that's um, meaningful to me. Right. that um, allows me to pursue the questions that I think are really important and that I think will make a positive contribution to, to the way that justice is administered or in many cases not administered uh, in this country. Um, that's an incredible privilege. And mm -hmm. I have had other jobs. Uh, when I was coming out of graduate school, I thought that I didn't want to be a researcher and I, I tried other things and I realized there's no better job for me because you get to... Um, to do the things that are important to you on a daily basis and make a contribution where you think it matters. Absolutely. I'm even sitting here talking to you now. It's obvious how passionate you are and you, your research really has made a, a big impact in the community, which is great. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you'd like to share with us? I appreciate the invitation. Um, I think that um, community members and students and other faculty um, who are interested in the work that the Wilder School is doing are in a really great place. And I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it. I'm happy to talk with folks and answer questions. Um, and I'm excited about what comes next. We are too. And, you know, Dr. Cleary, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we thank you to our audience for listening. And we hope that you will all join us again for the next episode of Compass Point.